Now I'm good. All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, the Logically Faithful, where we are engaging culture redemptively and addressing suffering productively, primarily through evidence, psychology, philosophy, science, anthropology, and in this particular case, maybe uh, scientific enterprise of dealing with a geophysicist who has been studying this kind of thing for over, was it 20 or 30 years, Dr. Haras? Uh, that's right, about four decades worth. <laughs> four years, 40 decades. Wow, that's amazing. Well, let me go ahead and give you your proper introductions. Um, you get that going. All right, there he goes. All right, Dr. Hugh Ross from Reasons to Believe, one of my favorite organizations, um, emerged from uh, his passion to develop and proclaim the most powerful reasons for Christ's creator, Lord, and Savior, using new reasons to reach people for Christ. So, Dr. Ross is an astronomer and best selling author travels the globe speaking about the compatibility of advanced scientific discoveries with the timeless truths of Christianity. His organization, Reasons to Believe, is dedicated to demonstrating a variety of resources and events and science and biblical faith, that science and biblical faith are allies and not enemies. Um, so he has a multiple author of multiple books, including The Improbable Planet, Navigating Genesis, Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job, Why the Universe is the Way It Is. And, of course, we're going to be dealing with the historical Adam uh, today. But before we do that, Hugh Ross just came out with a new book, uh, Weathering Climate Change. Is that what it is? Weathering Climate Change, A Fresh Approach. Congratulations on the new book, uh, Doctor. Well, thank you. And like the rest of my books, you can get a free chapter at reasons.org slash Ross. Great. Can you give us a, a, an overview? What, what did you uh, come up with, with that, in that book regarding the climate change uh, issue? Well, I put it in the historical context of what's been happening over the entire age of the earth and making the point that the past 9,500 years is unprecedented in its extreme climate stability. Mm -hmm. so I want people to appreciate that this period of climate stability we have had uh, is an extreme exception. And uh, literally, it's stable to plus or minus 0.65 degrees centigrade. So uh, far more stable than what we thought even three years ago. So I talk about all the fine-tuning that's necessary to open up this brief window of extreme fine-tuning. But I also talk about how we can extend that fine-tuning stability while we enhance the global economy. Because that's kind of where the controversy is today. We either stabilize the climate, uh, or we enhance our economy. Right. I'm saying we're not between a rock and a hard place. We can do both. Hmm. And that's really how you're going to motivate people, telling people uh, to limit their standard of living to a third of what they're used to. Uh, that's a hard sell. That's never going to happen. But if you can tell them, hey, if you do these things, it'll actually enhance your economic well-being. At the same time, uh, it'll uh, stabilize the climate and be of most benefit for the rest of Earth's life. Who's gonna vote against that? No, no, no. <laughs> Even you got both conservatives and liberals on both sides of the fence on that one. Um, but you have uh, the issue of whether it's artificial or primarily Indochina or not. I imagine you get into these issues in the book. Yeah, I do. I make the point that uh, natural cycles are cooling the planet, including cooling it quite dramatically. But human activity, human civilization has been warming the planet and for a period of 9,500 years, those two have been in balance. Uh, human activity has warmed it by the same degree the natural cycles have been cooling it. The last 70 years 
human activity is now superseding the natural cooling. So we are seeing global warming, only one degree centigrade so far, but yeah, we don't want it to go up another two degrees centigrade because if that happens, what we know from the ice age cycle, it rapidly leads to an ice age. Mm. That's kind of a paradox. Global warming always leads to global cooling. And that's because if you warm the planet too much, you melt the polar ice cap. And when you melt the polar ice cap, instead of sunlight being reflected with 60% efficiency off of the Arctic Ocean, it becomes reflected by only 6% efficiency. All that extra absorbed heat from the sun produces snow that falls on Siberia and Canada. The only reason Canada and Siberia today are not covered with thousands of feet of ice, they don't get enough precipitation. They're deserts. Uh, but if we were to double the rainfall or snowfall over those regions, they quickly become covered with thousands of feet of ice, and that cools the whole planet. Hmm. Interesting. Well, we'll look forward to that in the book. All right. So today I would like to discuss with you the historical atom. So to get to the nitty-gritty of that, thank you for dealing with this very controversial issue. Uh, so according to Genesis chapter 2, 7, um, and all the, the Genesis account, God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living soul. So God called the first man Adam, and then he created Eve, and then the rolling of the, the dice of human history began to unfold from there. Polls by Gallup and the Pew Research find that four out of ten Americans believe this account. It's a central tenet of conservative evangelical Christianity, as well as the Christian Reformed Church. The Catholic Church and Orthodox Church are sometimes split on the issue. Uh, some conservative scholars, though, as you well know, Dr. Ross, have come to doubt the historical reliability of the Genesis account or Adam being a historical figure. Particularly, I'm referring to BioLogos, a major uh, Christian organization that tries to reconcile the Bible and um, or Christian belief and, and science. And Dennis Vinema, um, Trinity Western University, said the following, that it would be against all the genomic evidence of well-established um, for the last 20 years to say that Adam was a historical figure. Talk to us, Dr. Ross, regarding this issue. Why is this question so important? And how do you address that with the, the conundrum on an evolutionary, evolutionary level with a Darwinian model, specifically in the animani, uh, excuse me, um, geology, animal behavior, paleontology, molecular biology, all the odds seem to be saying that we are complex organisms arisen from a universal common ancestor, and it can't possibly be one couple. Um, talk to us about that. Well, we've been engaging the scientists and theologians of BioLogos now for over a dozen years. Uh, my colleague, biochemist Fazal Rana, uh, debated Dennis Venema at Trinity Western University. Mm -hmm. So we're very much involved in this. We actually produced a two views book with BioLogos and a four views book where we were included with them along with young earth creationists and intelligent design proponents. And uh, back in January, we sponsored a conference at our headquarters on our human origins model where we invited atheist anthropologists as well as representatives from BioLogos and other theistic evolutionists to critique our model. By the way, we recorded the whole thing. Okay. Uh, your viewers can watch that at uh, Human Origins Workshop 2020 on our website. So you get to see how well our human origins model 
stands up under an entire day of critique uh, from unbelievers and theistic evolutionists and evolutionary creationists. But bottom line is, we question the capacity of sampling human genetic diversity today, and based on that sample, determining the ancestral population of human beings. And I'm old enough to remember when those kinds of studies were saying the ancestral population of humans was 1 million, mm -hmm. and then it dropped to 100,000. Now, when Francis Collins came out with his book, he said 10,000. Right. When my colleague debated Dennis Venema, he was saying 1,200. Uh, recently, when I debated the president of BioLogos, uh, Deborah Harzma, she said we could go as low as 132. Yeah, pause you for a moment. Um, sure. Maybe my readers or listeners, I'm not familiar with this particular debate. Why does it have to be a, um, uh, why is the evidence against the mitochondrial Eve or historical Adam? Why is it, do they say that it's a, a combination of a group of, um, a population that the original man and woman stem from? Well, they're basically arguing that if you look at the diversity of uh, human genetics today by sampling uh, the DNA of humans all over the world, they said the diversity is so great that it's impossible for all of us humans to be descended uh, from just one man and one woman uh, within a few hundred thousand years or less. And they're arguing that it has to be uh, probably in the thousands. And uh, you know, we've responded both in our book, Who is Adam? and in several articles, right. that sampling the DNA of a present population is fundamentally useless in determining an ancestral population. We basically cite studies where they've done that with animals, in particular where they've done it with horses, where they've done it with sheep, they've done it with orangutans, and what you discover is uh, you come up with inconsistent results. That we cite one atheist anthropologist who basically concluded in his paper that looking at present day genetic diversity has no value in determining an ancestral population. However, we have found when we have engaged theistic evolutionists and the atheistic anthropologists that they respond well when we point out, well, you know, when a, a woman is born, a, a human woman, yes. she is born with all of her reproductive eggs intact. And so when God created Eve, uh, he could have created all of her reproductive eggs genetically distinct from one another. And after all, it tells us in Genesis 5 that Eve is a mother of us all. I find it interesting that it references Eve as opposed to Adam. Mm. And so if God created Eve with genetically distinct eggs, you could explain virtually any degree of human diversity today, given that we're descended from one man and one woman. Uh, but we also stand by our conclusions that looking at present-day DNA, you're basically having to assume an evolutionary model of calm, naturalistic common descent to derive the uh, ancestral populations that are in the thousands. And so it's, you're basically using a circular argument. You're assuming uh, naturalistic common descent and trying to prove it uh, with this uh, number, but we're saying, what if the assumption is not correct? If we're specially created, uh, then the numbers you get are basically meaningless. So that's kind of a sample of the debate we've been having. Okay. And it's also been a biblical debate. What I appreciate about our friends of BioLogos, 
they will say, well, we could interpret Genesis 2, the passage you quoted, that we came from the dust. And basically they make the point, well, you know, every element heavier than helium uh, basically comes from stars. Uh, you heard Carl Sagan make the comment, we're all made out of stardust. Yes. And so they're commenting that maybe that text actually allows for naturalistic uh, common descent origin of Adam and Eve because everything comes from uh, the dust of the earth uh, in either model. Our response, however, is if you actually look at the Hebrew verbs that are used in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 uh, for God uh, making Adam and Eve, it's three verbs, uh, bara, asa, yatsar. And all three of those verbs imply God's direct supernatural intervention. I would agree with my friends of Biologos if the word was uh, haya, let there be, uh, which you do see in a couple of places in Genesis chapter one, in terms of what happens to the atmosphere and what happens to the continental land masses. With respect to Adam and Eve and humans, it does not use that verb, it uses bara, asa, yatsar. And what particular Genesis passage are we referring to so people can know? It's the one you're talking about, Genesis 2, 7, where it talks about uh, God created Adam, from okay. the dust of the earth. Ah, that and they're basically, okay. yeah, they're basically focusing on dust and saying that permits a variety of interpretations. However, when it says that God created, that's the verb yatsar, which is kind of a Hebrew combination of the definition of a saw and a bara. And actually, when you look in Genesis chapter one, it says that God made humans and he created humans. Mm -hmm. I've argued in my book, Navigating Genesis, that that is making the point. There is something about us human beings that God manufactured by direct intervention from material that already existed. And that would refer to our physical body. Physical bodies are not brand new. Other animals have physical bodies. But what is brand new about humans is that we alone of all species of life are endowed with a spirit that allows us to discover God, communicate with him, and have a relationship with him. And so I argue that explains why you have two verbs. Our bodies are not brand new, our spirit is brand new, but in both cases, God had to supernaturally intervene to make both our bodies possible and to make our a spirit possible. Okay. And uh, I've uh, been teaching on this in my uh, Sunday school class at paradoxes.org, mm -hmm. making the point of all you do is look at the human body. You can see it's got features that don't exist in any other animal on planet Earth. And so I use that as an argument that we can't simply be the product of common descent naturalistic evolution because we don't see an analogies to a lot of the anatomical features we see in human beings. Okay. So in that sense, I think a saw really does not allow for a strictly naturalistic explanation. May I challenge you on this um, evolution question? Sure. Okay. I'm sure you get this. <laughs> You're used to this by now. <laughs> all the challenges around the world. The, the most antagonistic is the most loving. Well, hopefully I'll try to be somewhere in the middle. Um, so the fossil and evolutionary genomics reveal that the um, about... Humans lived about 6 million years ago. Along with the evolutionary branch to humans, there are approximately 6,000 transitional fossils. Scientists have also discovered about 
50% of the DNA sequence in our genes are similar to chimpanzees. There's some debate there about that. Of course, there's always debate about stuff like this. Um, including the defensive genes, the pseudogenes. This is <coughs> our own families as well. In addition to archeological record, discloses the humans who behaved like us, creating our sophisticated tools, intentional burials, appeared approximately 50,000 years ago, burying the dead with items needed for afterlife signifies religious belief. Finally, science has found that genetic variability among all peoples today is quite small and indicates that we descended from a group of about 10,000. Um, so all this seems to indicate evolutionary Darwinian models among the general academic elite around the world regardless of your academic institution, secularly speaking. So you're arguing some of these presuppositions are off or wrong. Why? Why? Because I can cite articles written by people who are not believers in the scientific literature that dispute those claims that you've been talking about. Give us some. Well, for example, uh, you were mentioning how there's papers published saying uh, Neanderthals uh, had control over fire, they were burying their dead, they were making jewelry, uh, they were making musical instruments, they were engaged in sophisticated art, um, and they were conducting funeral services. All those papers, uh, their conclusions have been disputed in the same journals in which they were published. So this is an area of debate. And uh, we're actually coming out with a book on evolution. It's not ready yet. It'll be out in the fall. Uh, but uh, we had one of the world's top uh, anthropologists write five chapters in that book, Sue Dykes. Mm -hmm. uh, she passed away recently, mm -hmm. uh, but not before she wrote these chapters. And basically what she does in that chapter is take you through the scientific literature and basically make the point, these papers are written by physical anthropologists that are reading into the data what they want to see. But if you actually look at the data, uh, it's a stretch to take it the degree they did. I'll give an example. Where do biologists and modern paleontologists and evolutionary specialists get it right? Well, it's interesting that even physical anthropologists who are committed atheists strongly dispute these claims and have published in the literature making those, uh, those points. I mean, for example, uh, the basis for claiming that there was some kind of funeral service being conducted by the Neanderthals is the fact that they find parts of a Neanderthal skeleton and 20 feet away, they find flower pollen. Mm -hmm. And so they can claim, well, this was a group of Neanderthals sitting around this dead Neanderthal and they were throwing flowers on top of the dead body. Well, it's a possible interpretation, but it could be that that pollen is there without any reference uh, to any burial of the Neanderthal whatsoever. The fact that they're 20 feet apart uh, may be completely coincidental. Uh, and moreover, you're dealing with part of the skeleton, not the whole skeleton. And there is no other evidence to sustain the idea uh, that they were having a burial service. And moreover, I would argue, you want to compare these kinds of claims, what we see in animal behavior. So for example, it's well documented that in a herd of elements, when the matriarch elephant dies, all the ele other elephants in the uh, herd will circle around the dead matriarch and pile straw over her body until she's completely covered. Hmm. This is not a funeral service. It's basically these elephants expressing their grief over the matriarch that has just passed away. And uh, 
You know, I've had uh, pets that have also exhibited that degree of grief. Uh, we had a pet dog and a pet cat that were strongly bonded to one another. And when the dog died, that cat grieved for 40 days mm. over the loss of that dog. And that's because God created soulish animals, the birds and mammals, with a capacity to express and receive strong emotions. And part of that is grief. I mean, I live in a neighborhood where we got coyotes. And uh, for two days, I heard a male coyote just howling over the dead body of its female mate. Mm. Uh, and would refuse to eat or go hunting uh, because of the grief uh, that he was experiencing. Sounds very much like a form of a funeral service, so you can understand that. Well, it's an expression it of like the emotion, but I'm arguing yeah. to conclude that this is evidence that these creatures had a spirit component to them. Mm. I mean, we, see, we don't see any evidence of building temples or erecting idols, anything like that. Well, what about the general evidence within the genomic record, the fossil record, for the biological um, evolution of human beings from bipedal animals? Not necessarily well, monkeys per se, but some kind of uh, humanoid form in between. Yes, uh, we do agree that uh, there is a sequence of bipedal primate species that precedes human beings, and it extends over about a six and a half million period uh, before the appearance of humans. However, we point out that uh, if we don't see a linear progression in the cranial brain capacity or a linear progression uh, towards uh, uh, bipedal capability, Rather, it goes up and down in a chaotic fashion. The one thing we do see, however, is a roughly linear progression in the capacity of these creatures to be able to hunt birds and mammals. And it was actually the uh, anthropologist and atheist, Ian Tattersall, pointed out to us, uh, have you noticed that these bipedal primates, we only find fossils in Africa, Asia, and Europe? And we find most of them in sub-Sahara Africa. And he says, have you also noticed that when humans show up in these locations, they, they, they do drive the very animals that they need for civilization to extinction. Mm. Uh, but the extinction rate when humans invaded sub-Sahara Africa was only 4.5%. Whereas the extinction rate when humans went into Australia uh, was 96%. Mm. So he's basically pointing out since Australia didn't have any of these animals before human beings, the animals, the birds and mammals that were living there did not have time uh, to be trained. When you see tall bipedal creatures with weapons in their hands, run. Because the Bible tells us that God designed the birds and mammals to come to us to serve and and please us and relate to us. That's their natural tendency. But I think God specially created uh, this sequence of bipedal primates basically to train these birds and mammals. When you see tall creatures uh, on two feet with weapons in their hands, don't go towards them, run away. Mm -hmm. And the proof of that is where they existed in Asia, Europe and Asia, enough of the large body bird and mammals survived that the humans there were able to domesticate the horses, the cows, the donkeys, the sheep, and the goats and launch civilization. 
Whereas what happened in Australia, they killed them all off. Mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore, they were stuck in the Stone Age and at a low population level until the Europeans brought to them the animals that they needed. Now, in your book, uh, the, the Who's Adam, tell us here directly for people who haven't read or will be interested in reading further, Adam, the historical Adam, as mentioned in Genesis, was he a real concrete individual like you and I? Yes, that's our uh, position, that he was like us, um, and that all of humanity is descended from one man and one woman that God specially created. Now, let me ask you further. Let me get deeper into it. Um, one of the criticisms done on your work regarding this is the Imago Dei, the very image of God. <laughs> but you argue in the book that there were uh, pre-human humanoids of some sort before Adam that had very similar characteristics to us, maybe even looked like us at very high levels, but were not made in the image of God. They were different. Do you um, expand on that thesis for us? Well, that's kind of the biologos position, uh, that there were individuals that were just like us in every physical way you can imagine. Same kind of brain, uh, same kind of body, but they didn't have the image of God. And at some point, God took a couple of individuals out from them and breathed into them uh, his spirit, and they became uh, Adam and Eve. So that's kind of their population study, our our model. Uh, However, I want to be honest in making the point that as we've engaged the scientists and theologians at Biologos, they actually have quite a wide range of models of how God takes this large population of humans and selects out an Adam and an Eve from whom we get the image of God. However, our position is there wasn't a population. Uh, There was just one man and one woman that God specially created in the garden, and we're all physically descended uh, from that one man and one woman. Now, the pushback against that is they say, well, look at all the genes that we share with the Denisovans and the Neanderthals and the chimpanzees, and they argue that they claim that there's actually uh, deleterious genes or genes that are useless, that serve no purpose in both humans and Neanderthals and Denisovans. And they said if they have no purpose or they're deleterious, that only makes sense if they are the product of common descent via naturalistic evolution. Our response to that is, you may think it has no function or that it's deleterious, uh, but this, what we've learned in genetics is how frequently genes that we thought serve no purpose end up serving purpose. You know, and a good example of that is the ENCODE project, uh, where before this big genetic study was done on the human genome, uh, geneticists were saying only 2% of the human genome is functional. The rest of it is useless genes that we inherited through naturalistic evolution. Thanks to the ENCODE project, we know that 80% of what we thought was junk DNA actually serves purpose. And the problem was the geneticists were only looking for purpose in one area. Does the gene code for the building of proteins? Well, that's one function of our DNA, but a much more prevalent function is genes that actually control the development of the human from the time they're conceived until they're about 24, 25 years of age. I mean, we humans have a very long development time the longest of any animal on the face of the earth. 
And that requires a huge amount of genes to control uh, that development. So things happen in the right order, right place, and the right sequence. So were there pre-Adamic humanoids before Adam? We do argue there were bipedal primates before hum humans, but that they were not human. We argue that they have much more similarity with chimpanzees than they do with human beings. Would those be we the Neanderthals of our? Pardon me? Would those be like the Neanderthals? Yeah, the Neanderthals are considered the most advanced of these bipedal primates uh, that, uh, you know, uh, from our perspective, are not human. Um, and we make the point that if you look at the behavior and the artifacts associated with Neanderthals, they have much in common with the chimpanzees and very little in common with human beings. I think a lot of it is that people fail to realize how sophisticated these chimpanzees are. I mean, like for the evidence that Neanderthals had control over fire, that evidence that I've seen in the scientific literature is no more impressive than what we already see of chimpanzees in the wild. Namely, that when there's a wildfire that breaks out in chimpanzee territory, the chimpanzees will run towards the fire and dump on the fire all these nuts that they're not able to break open with their stone tools, knowing that the fire is going to heat those nuts up to a point, soften the shells, and when the fire is over, they go back, they recover all these nuts, and they can easily break them open and eat them. So that's an example of an opportunistic uh, response to fire. Right, you right. see a fire, you take advantage of it. That's quite different from building a hearth and uh, you know, actually starting a fire uh, from scratch and then using that fire uh, to bake bread and uh, to you know, do other uh, bakery products. Dr. Uh, Roth, give us some specific lines of evidence, either in paleontology or genomics or other fields, that argue for the historicity of Adam. Well, I'm coming out with an article in a couple of weeks basically making the point, be careful about the dates that you see in the scientific literature relative to human origins. Uh, with the exception of carbon-14 dating, they have enormous systematic errors. In fact, I argue from the scientific literature, there are cases uh, where dates had to be downgraded by a factor of 20 times. You know, a famous example is there is a paper claiming humans have been in Australia for 60,000 years because of what we see from optical luminescence dating of artifacts found in the Jimnian Cave in Central Australia. Well, they finally were able to redate those same artifacts with carbon-14, came back 3,000 years, hmm. literally off by a factor of 20 times. Wow. And now, if you get back before a quarter of a million years ago, you now pick up dates that have much lower systematics. But between about a quarter of a million years ago and say 45,000 years ago, we scientists lack any a dating method that doesn't have really big systematic effects. And so when you see in the scientific literature that the humans have around for 300,000 years, if you look in detail at the dating method, it's 150,000 plus or minus 150,000 years ago. And I make the point that it's quite typical in these science papers that they quote the date at the edge of the error bar 
rather than the middle of the error bar. And be much more honest to say 150,000 plus or minus 150,000. So what number do you think it is that Adam actually lived in? Well, based on Genesis chapter two, I would say that Adam was created somewhere between 45 and 130,000 years ago. And I get that out of Genesis 2 because it tells us that God created Adam and Eve at a time when four known rivers came together in this Garden of Eden. And the rivers are named, and we're told where the rivers flow from. The Tigris and Euphrates still flow today. The Gihon and the Pishon are dead, dry riverbeds. But it tells us in Genesis 2 where they flowed from. And today, with satellite imagery, we can see those dry riverbeds. And those four rivers come together in a location that's in the southeast part of the Persian Gulf, today more than 200 feet below sea level. But during the last ice age, it would have been above sea level, because the sea level today is 390 feet higher than it was during the last ice age. So, and I say 45,000 because that's the oldest date we get from carbon-14 dating. I'm just curious about that because I know my young Earth colleagues will push back on that. It took Adam and his family, who are geniuses, 40, I mean, approximately 30,000 years to start civilization? That just took, that seems really um, odd, to say the least. Well, they need to read Weathering Climate Change, my most recent <laughs> book. Uh-huh. I make the point that... Uh, well, Typifies the ice age cycle is extreme climate instability, where the global mean temperature jumps up and down uh, by 12 to 15 degrees centigrade on time scales of just a few centuries. When the climate is that unstable, mm-hmm. and moreover, during an ice age, the carbon dioxide level drops down to about 170 to 180 parts uh, per million. And when it gets that low, photosynthesis becomes very inefficient, Hmm. which means you're not going to get the food production that would you get with today's carbon dioxide level. And with the climate instability, uh, whatever you plant uh, is likely to fail. And so I'm arguing that what these humans were doing during the last ice age is having small farms, one or two acres, where they would plant 12 to 15 different crops And of those 12 to 15 crops, uh, most would fail. You may only have three crops. And uh, you wouldn't be able to predict which crops are going to fail and which ones are going to survive. And you feed your family and those that do. Same thing with animal husbandry. But why take so long to develop civilization? I'm I'm struggling with that one. The Neolithic Revolution, which was started about 11,000 years ago, that did not happen until the climate stabilized. I see. When you've got extreme climate instability, uh, any kind of agricultural activity has to be highly diverse and on a very small scale. You can't specialize. How did the specialize, man and woman live in such a volatile climate? Um, excuse me for asking further questions on this. Sure. Yeah, but it's, it's, a, it's a contentious one. Well, they would have to survive uh, by doing everything on a small scale and extremely diverse. I they would see. also have to survive by devoting 99% of the human population to gathering food, uh, planting crops, uh, hunting. Uh, And so it was very much a hand-to-mouth survival uh, situation. 
Uh, that is until the climate stabilizes. And how once, long do you think that took? Because civilization started possibly what three, four thousand years ago. Well, you see the beginnings of civilization eleven thousand years ago. Uh, this is when humans began to specialize for the first time, uh, where instead of planting fifteen different crops, they would plant one, and instead of planting one acre. Uh, they would plant hundreds of acres, and they would get this huge abundance of food, and they would sell or trade that food for products with other humans that were specializing, say, in the domestication of goats. Uh, we have evidence now uh, through bones that 11,000 years ago is when humans began to have herds of a thousand plus goats, hmm. and so they would specialize on these goats and basically trade the goat products. Uh, for the grain from people who are specializing in grain. It was also a time when you see the first towns and villages. In these towns and villages, they weren't bothered with trying to come up with food because there was such an abundance of food that they could trade for. And so for the first time, you see a town where 100% of the human activity is focused on making tools and pottery goods. And so they would trade those tools and pottery goods for the grain, and uh, for the uh, goat products, uh, the sheep products, uh, and that's and then people began to build transportation systems, and then civilization took off from there. But it couldn't happen unless you had a stable climate. I see. All right, let's uh, let's get moving on here with the questions I sent you uh, regarding the uh, historical atoms specifically linked to the exegy of the work of, of the Apostle Paul who argues there's a parallel between the new Adam and the old Adam, Jesus Christ being the new Adam, historically speaking, as a real individual, and then Adam being the historical individual in the past. And that sin, in order for it to make sense for us, there has to be rooted into two historically real concrete individuals, Adam and Jesus Christ. Um, right. Connect to this, uh, that area where uh, people would argue that death itself came through the first man, and that death being connected to what's called original sin. Unpack that for us. Well, that's a good point you're raising. And our friends of Biologos, the theologians there say, you know, we think we can handle Genesis 1 and 2. Mm -hmm. It's the Romans that's the biggest problem for us. And basically, they're realizing if they have this population, uh, then they really have to abandon original sin in some way. Now, to be fair to them, they are claiming all humans today are sinners. Uh, but most of them are claiming we did not get it from one man. Uh, we got it through a different means. And they have all kinds of different models. But they all admit, taking Romans literally, as most Hebrew or Greek scholars do, uh, poses a huge problem for them. Because if you take that text literally, it's saying we all got sin from one man, Adam, and we all experienced physical death from that one man. If there is a population, you couldn't claim uh, that all of us experience physical death for the offense of the one man. And so this is a passage they struggle with. And I make the point when I engage in the saying, you know, Romans is not something to trifle with. It's kind of the foundational book for building our soteriology. And so if you start uh, giving way on uh, what the text is saying about original sin and where we get physical death from, and Romans 5 actually links physical death with spiritual death and then talks about how God is going to overcome both physical death and spiritual death. These are not trivial doctrines. 
And so uh, really the Christian faith is at stake in terms of this debate over how we interpret Romans 5. And also point out, don't just look at Romans 5.12. Read all the way down to the end of the chapter because Paul repeats these statements over and over again. And when you see that kind of specific repetition, that's a clue that Paul intends that we read this literally and not try to put some figurative context into it. Well, I look forward to meeting a historic Adam in heaven. <laughs> yes, that's great. Uh, but, but I'm struggling, Dr. Ross, with the verbal gymnastics people are doing with Genesis. It's on a deep level. I mean, I've seen people do uh, the verbal gymnastics with uh, and the linguistic and exegetical gymnastics on the passages on homosexuality to try to justify anything and everything you want, including transgenderism or uh, even slavery in the past. You just take the scriptures and just twist them enough. You can justify whatever you want. How can we guard ourselves from that kind of uh, heresy, if I may? Well, again, several of my friends, not all of them at BioLogos, are very concerned about this very point. They recognize the danger of a slippery slope, that if you start interpreting uh, Genesis in this way, what do you do with the rest of Scripture? If you start uh, you know, doing the things we said with the Book of Romans. Right. Now, I've written a book, Navigating Genesis, on the first 11 chapters of Genesis, where I make the point that trying to interpret this text as non-historical simply won't fly in the light of how Moses writes these chapters. I mean, as I look at the way it's structured in the original Hebrew, it's like Moses is going to every possible route that he can to imply this is a chronology of real physical events. Mm-hmm. And this is not just some kind of metaphor. The fact that we have the days that are being numbered, the repetition of the phrase, and it was so, uh, the repetition of it was good, the way the verbs are structured in the text. It's like Moses is going overboard to communicate this is an account of real history, of real physical events. But I can tell you this. You don't believe Everybody have engaged. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I know we talked about this in our previous interview, but you don't believe these are 25 his literal days either. Well, I don't because when I look at the text, in fact, long before I knew anything about Hebrew, even at age 17 when I was reading the Bible for the first time, I said, this word day that's used in Genesis 1 and 2 must have at least three distinct literal definitions because three are obviously used right here on the first page. Mm-hmm. Creation day one, it's contrasting days and nights. That's the word day for the daylight hours. Creation day four, it's contrasting seasons, days, and years. That's day for 24 hours. But Genesis 2, 4 uses the word day to refer to the entirety of creation history. So that's day as a long period of time. And then I notice that you've got an evening and a morning for the first six days. I said, you know, I'm not sure what the original Hebrew on morning and evening means, but at a minimum, it's telling us each of these creation days has a definite start point and a definite end point. I anticipated seeing an evening and a morning for the seventh day, but it's not there. Mm. There is no evening and morning for day seven. And so that motivated me to read through the rest of the Bible and say, are there any other references to this seventh day? And there's several. Uh, What we see in particular in Psalm 95 and Hebrews 4 is that these texts tell us we're still in God's seventh day. 
And moreover, the Bible teaches it's a day when God rests from his work of creation. He's basically focusing on his work of redemption, but this is a day when he stops creating. And when I recognized that in the Bible, I said, oh, this explains why so many astronomers and physicists believe in God, and so few biologists believe in God. Because hmm. the vast majority of biologists, their research is focused on the human era. And the human era, God is not supernaturally intervening in the record of nature. But previous to the human era, he is. Those are the six days when God creates. So when we astronomers uh, look through our telescopes at the past history of the universe, we see evidence for God's interventions everywhere. And so that explains why so many physicists and chemists and astronomers believe in God, but a much lower percentage of those in the life sciences. Let's move um, from the position now to a more biblical and ethical one. Uh, the vicarious guilt of Adam is passed on to all of mankind. I talked to another scholar who told me, uh, Clay Jones, and a few others, that if I or any other woman was together in Adam's place, we would have done the same thing given enough time and evidence. Um, but nevertheless, the guilt of Adam is passed on to all of us via original sin. How is that one number just and two makes sense? Well, I'm not sure exactly how that original sin is passed on to us. Maybe there's some kind of spiritual DNA that we can't see that explains how we get sin uh, from that first man that God created. But the Bible is clear that there is a big benefit uh, to that sin that we experience through Adam, namely that it opens up a pathway for eternal security. Mm. I mean, one of the things I wondered when I first read the Bible is, you know, here's this all-powerful being. He could have kept Satan out of the garden. He could have kept him away from the earth. He could have kept him away from the universe. Right. He didn't do that. He actually allowed Satan to come in. And moreover, he allowed Satan to tempt Eve when her husband wasn't around and God wasn't around. Now, God could have actually stayed right by Eve's side and said, don't listen to that guy. Mm -hmm. He stayed away. And uh, I believe that it was God's purpose all along that uh, Adam and Eve would be exposed to the temptation of Satan. And because Satan is the most powerful and intelligent being that God ever created, uh, Adam and Eve are no match for Satan. But it gave Adam and Eve the opportunity mm -hmm. to be exposed to the most challenging tests possible in God's creation and the context of evil. And the principle is this, if you can pass that test of evil, there is no other test that can ever persuade you to abandon your relationship with God. Mm. And the analogy I use, I think you'll appreciate this, is the PhD analogy. Okay. You know, we both have a PhD degree, and uh, that degree guarantees that we'll never have to be tested again for a competency and our discipline. And the reason why is that we've been exposed to the most challenging tests, so it's pointless to test us again. So once we get the PhD, we're guaranteed no more tests. Well, using that same analogy, uh, God is exposing us to the most challenging tests, and we pass that, uh, no other tests can possibly disturb us. I see. Okay. And I'd like to add one more analogy. Mm -hmm. 
I remember I showed up at the University of Toronto as a freshman graduate student, mm -hmm. and there were 13 of us in the freshman class. The professor sat down with us on that first day and said, uh, you 13 are the cream of the crop of Canada's students, and we all know you're committed to work hard, but we're gonna put you through a program that is so challenging, no matter how intelligent you are, no matter how hard you work, you will not pass without our help. But our office doors are open. We give priority to our graduate students. If you see an undergrad in there, we'll kick the undergrad out and have you come in. <laughs> our doors are open, we are available to you. Uh -huh. And what was interesting, of the 13 of us, only seven of us got the PhD. Mm. And of those six, mm -hmm. I can tell you that at least two of them did not take advantage of what the professors were offering. Now, here's the difference. In Christianity, God also tells us, this challenge that I'm putting you through is far too difficult for you to pass it in your own strength. You're no match for Satan. And moreover, he's got an army of demons with him. You're no match. But I'm here to help you. And if you come to me for the help that you, can, that you need, I guarantee you'll pass. Now, my professors at the University of Toronto didn't give me a guarantee. They just guaranteed I wouldn't pass if it didn't come to them for help. But God actually goes farther and says, if you as a human come to me for help to pass this most challenging test, I guarantee you'll pass. And notice when we get into the new creation, there's no longer any evil, and yet our free will capacity to experience and express love is enhanced. The other thing you notice is in the book of Revelation is that there's a period of time when God locks up Satan, which means that people can no longer blame Satan for their human behavior. But at the very end, God releases Satan to test the children born during that period. Mm. And basically making the point, no one gets to enter the new creation without being exposed to the most challenging tests. Because after all, God's goal is that there be humans in new creation that would never uh, be tempted to express evil for the rest of eternity. Let me, um, this is powerful. This is, thank you for sharing that. The, so talk to the student or the professor who's listening, who's struggling between the a dichotomy between science and faith and religion and the transcendent, um, and trying to overcome the hurdles of naturalism and scientism. Any tips, any strategies for them to deal with as they navigate this road? Yes, one important word, integration. You know, a lot of my peers in science, uh, they de develop a non-theistic perspective because they're so focused in a narrow sub-discipline. Okay. And they say, yeah, I see problems in my sub-discipline uh, with my non-theistic worldview perspective. Uh, but my colleagues tell me they got it all worked out in their disciplines. So just the fact that I got a problem, I'm going to go along with them. What he doesn't realize or she doesn't realize, that's true of every sub-discipline of science. Mm -hmm. Every one of them's got a problem. And if you actually look at all these sub-disciplines and integrate them, you see how pervasive the scientific challenges are to a non-theistic worldview. And likewise, when people get into debates about the Bible, uh, don't just focus on one book of the Bible. Uh, the Bible is 66 distinct books. Mm -hmm. And so I encourage people, do not draw a conclusion 
about what the Bible is saying on a significant issue until you've looked at that issue in the context of all 66 books. So for example, in my church, I encourage our parishioners, you know, you need to be reading through the entire Bible, but don't do one of these one or two year studies. Pick one topic and get through the entire Bible in six weeks or less, just focusing on that one topic. If you do it in a six week or less context, you're gonna be able to remember everything you saw on that uh, particular subject and be able to integrate it, hopefully fairly seamlessly. But if you take two years, you're gonna forget what you read uh, back in January of last year. And you say, well, uh, how can I get everything out of the Bible then if all I'm gonna focus on one topic? And I said, who says you just read it once? Uh, you, need to be, you need to have the practice as a Christian of going through the Bible again and again and again. But my uh, point is, pick one narrow topic and read through it quickly. Okay. And the next time, pick another narrow topic, but read through it quickly. Okay, that's interesting. Nothing like focus, right, Dr. Ross? We both know that when, with our doctoral work. Well, the other thing you want to do is carefully with all the sub-disciplines in science. And I like to take people back to Article 2 of the Belgian Confession, which says that God gave us two books, the Book of Nature and the Book of Scripture, mm -hmm. and how both are the inspired, inerrant, authoritative uh, Word of God, mm. which tells us from a biblical perspective that uh, if we study both books in sufficient depth, there will be no contradictions between the two books. And we see what looks like a contradiction that should be a signal we need to study at a much greater depth than we studied so far. And when you do, you discover new things. I mean, right. that's the joy. In fact, again, what I share with people is that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, don't leave it up to the professionals. Don't depend on your pastor or your seminary professor to do all the theology for you. The Bible commands every follower of Christ to be a theologian but it also commands every follower of Christ to be a scientist. Mm. Don't leave it up to the professional scientists. As I tell people, the theology and the science is way too much fun not to get involved. Jump in and enjoy it. Mm. Oh, there's a lot there, sir. Thank you very much for your time, Dr. Ross. It's been very enlightening. Um, I'm always uh, pointing people back to uh, reasons to believe and some of the great insights you have and on your new book on climate change we'll be indicating that as well oh thank you it was a pleasure